Just a reminder, guys, you know why we have these forms, right? These FBI forms? Two reasons. I try to get you to pay attention during the sermon for a little while anyway. And for two, if you get enough stickers on that board, I'll open up my office door there, and there's a whole shelf of goodies you can choose from. So before you leave, get one of those, okay? This is a story about an individual who lived in the Philippines. His name is Justin. And you can see a map of the Philippines there. It didn't tell us in the story exactly where he lived, but this is somebody who enjoyed sharing literature. So guess what he did? What do you think he did since he enjoyed sharing literature? Of course, he shared literature, but he tried to find a way to do it so that people would, would take the literature. So he bought a shirt, a red shirt. What do you think he wrote, had written on that red shirt? Any guesses? He wants people to take literature, so what, you think, what do you think he'd have written on that shirt? Please take a piece of literature, maybe? Or have me pray with you? What do you think he had on there? Well, how about if I show you? You might be a little bit shocked. He said this, I'll give you $5 if you ask me for a Bible pamphlet, and I don't have one. So he had to carry around his literature, and what would happen if he didn't carry his literature? He'd be carrying around a stack of $5 bills, wouldn't he? So how many people do you think asked him for literature just to make sure that he uh, actually had it? At first, there was only a few, because they, they, they were walking by fast, and he was in a, in a marketplace. And, but after a while, since you're in a marketplace, or you're places where people want to go buy stuff, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> and they would see the $5 thing there, and they would stop and ask him for literature. And so what, what do you think he did? He gave him literature. He didn't want to give him the $5 bill. I mean, he, so he started giving out literature, and eventually got to the point where some of them said, can you give me a whole stack of literature? I'm going to take it around to different places around here. So he gave out literature to them as well, whole stacks of literature. And some other people took more and more pamphlets than the ones he gave. And some eventually got into Bible studies, of course. But he, all, he began that whole thing with just this t-shirt. I'll give you $5 if you ask me for a Bible pamphlet and I don't have one. I bet you if, you, if we all got t-shirts like that, walked around the mall, and we had that on our shirt, maybe even a $10 bill instead of 5 we'd probably get people to ask us for literature, wouldn't we? or even over here at flea market, other places. But that was his way of sharing Jesus with people around him. Now, another question. Why do you think he wanted to share Jesus so much with the people around him? Any ideas? You usually share something you're excited about, right? Why was he excited about Jesus, you think? Any ideas? You guys are awfully quiet, huh? Hopefully you're this quiet when I'm preaching for the next 30 minutes, huh? Well, then maybe this is why. The Bible says in Psalm 126 that if you sow in tears, you'll reap in joy. There's something joyful that comes in the future. Let's say you get down to your last part of your paycheck for the month, and you think, well, I could really use this to buy something I need, but the Lord put it on your heart to buy literature instead, and you bought all this literature, and you're thinking, you're inside, you're thinking, I could have used that money for something else, but I'm going to buy all this literature instead. Well, it's kind of like what they did in the farming days. They would buy seed, and they would hope that that seed would give them the crop that they would eventually sustain their family. And this is talking about Israel. And eventually it says, if you go forth and weep, in other words, bearing that precious seed, the, these, word, these pieces of literature, these things about God, you will come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. So this guy believed over there in the Philippines, Justin was his name, that by sharing these little pieces of literature, that maybe over time, it would be like a harvest, how one plant grows into all kinds of seeds, 
he was hoping that many people would be ready for Jesus to come back. And that's called the harvest in the Bible. So you take that literature that you have. There's a, a glow rack out there. You can give it out with the other youth. You can also take it home and give it out to people around your neighborhood. You can bake some good goodies during Thanksgiving, Christmas time, whatever, and put it in there with the goodies. You can do all kinds of ways of taking the seeds of the Bible and sharing it with others. You can also just do it by being kind to people. So we're going to pray to God that he can guide us as children, but also as adults, to find as many ways as possible to share Jesus. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for the story about Justin. Thank you for him putting on that shirt day in and day out. And after a while, people began to notice, and they began to not only ask for literature uh, from him, but to ask for more to give to their friends and family. And that kept spreading all around. And so thank you that we can be like Justin who really is like Jesus, who wants to share his love with as many as possible. Bless each young person here. Guide them to share in their own way. Guide us as adults to share as well. And may many people be one to you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, here's your special sheet. And make sure you pay attention, especially when I get to the FBI slide. Okay. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for how you've shared through Jesus these wonderful words of life that we've sung about, that we've read about. And so guide us with the Holy Spirit to see more words from Jesus that we can share with a world in need all around us and give us wisdom on how to go about doing that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember quite a few years ago when I was in beginning Greek class, and for those of you who have grown up in the American system of education, you know that after a certain point, they cease teaching you all the grammar rules. And when you get to college, they really come in handy when the professors and stuff are asking you to write certain page, papers and certain styles, and, and you go through and they're telling you, you got a comma splice over here. But imagine now trying to relearn all the English grammar so you can get through that Greek class. That's what I was doing. Every, morning, every time I would go to that class in the morning, I'd, he would introduce something like a participle, or, or he, he would say, this is an... Uh, direct object, and, or this is you know, substantively, this is acting substantively, and I'd be like, man, what in the world? And he seemed to know everything he was talking about, and I was thinking to myself, where did I miss the grammar bus with these terms, you know? And that's how I felt in Greek class. And after a while, though, I, I was getting a B for a while there, and I was thinking, oh, I'm, I'm just going to drop eventually to the C if I'm not careful. I've got to know all these rules. So I went back and started restudying my grammar. Now, if you're homeschool or you're around your kids enough, you know eventually you've got to learn all that grammar again to teach your kids anyway. I've been, my wife and I have been doing that recently. So it's really easy now, but then it wasn't. And I still remember walking into this building here, and this building here is called the Dick Building, and I would be walking not from this path, but a path over here, and I'd be walking up there with my Greek book, and my, and my I didn't have a laptop back then. Those things were kind of new then, and a lot of people couldn't even afford them. And I remember walking in there with kind of feeling a little bit tense, until I could get that English grammar. And one morning especially, we got into there and he was introducing some new terms and I'm thinking, here we go again. I gotta go home and study the English language again. And all of a sudden a student came in, did you see, did you see? And the professor was kind of taken back because this is kind of an interruption to class. And then he's like, okay, what is it? And he names the student and the student begins to share how a plane crashed into one of the ten, Twin Towers. And the teacher's like, oh, that's got to be a fluke, you know? Like the, the, the pilot got off somehow his route and he, he crashed a little plane into the Twin Towers. And we kind of shrugged it off and continued through the grueling process of learning the English and Greek 
language. But then class was over with. Went downstairs, and in that building there, there's a, there's a TV screen, probably just a little bit bigger than this little one down here. It wasn't really that big. And on that TV screen was the news playing through, and it showed the, the footage of the first plane. And at that time, they cut in live and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And you know what the rest of the story is, right? There's that second plane hitting the towers. And I kid you not, there, were, there was a whole crowd of people, I'm more than in this sanctuary, crowding around this little TV screen, watching this flat screen TV of this, this whole thing go up into an inferno type thing. And of course, eventually the newscasters were describing people jumping from the flaming twin towers. You know, you know where you were at when this happened. That's where I was at. It was in Greek class when I heard about it. And many years have gone by since then, and we're getting pretty close to September 11 again in our, in our calendar year. But as I think back on this experience, a question comes to mind. What is God trying to say to us when we see towers fall? And I didn't just choose the title of the sermon just for September 11. It's right out of the Bible. What is God trying to say to us when towers fall? When evil happens? And I don't believe we have to guess at this. I believe there's a clear, thus saith the Lord, and it's really from the very words of Jesus. Coincidentally, the words of Jesus seem to, to actually deal with every major thing we have going on in this earth's history. You know that? The very words of Jesus. Our prophetic words, words of encouragement. And here in Luke chapter 13, there were some present at that season. And if you notice from our, our season together here at our church in the Gospel of Luke, he's been teaching on various subjects. And here is this group there. <clears throat> and amongst that group are some that told him, Jesus, of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. I know some scholars think, well, maybe these were, were uh, Galileans who were militant individuals following like a Messiah, like in the book of Acts describes a revolt in Galilee. But as we keep reading, Jesus is pretty clear. These individuals were not necessarily doing anything bad. They were making sacrifices to the Lord. And Jesus answered and said to them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And these are the Galileans. This is a key word here. There's individuals telling, hey, look at these Galileans who we heard about them getting killed by Pilate. I was reading some books on Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes. And the region of Galilee actually developed some reinterpretations of some of the Old Testament prophets that were very militant, that were very, you know, very much... Uh, on, the, on the idea of a strict form of Judaism in that area. But this tells us that this sect of Judaism, this group of, Ju of Galileans, was having, had their blood mingle with their sacrifice. <clears throat> I'll read a quotation for you in a few moments showing that, that mainly these were devout worshipers of the Most High, and Pilate, of course, targets them. But having their blood mingle with the sacrifices... Many people believed, and somewhere in the region of Galilee, that the, at the Messiah's banquet, the Gentiles would come into this banquet and would basically the Lord would kill them and strike them down with a sword. And what would happen? Then the true people of God, the Jews, would walk through and wade through their blood to get to the Messiah's banquet. And some of those strange interpretations I found came out of this region of Galilee. They reinterpreted portions of Scripture. And so the true followers of God, even from the region of Galilee, would wade through the blood of the Gentiles, like Pilate, for instance, 
who had just spilled the blood of, of these Galileans. They'd be wading through his blood. And so can you imagine both indignation, but also in this text that it looks like there's a sense that we're better than those people. They would be wondering, why did this happen to these Galileans? Some in the audience would be wondering. While others are saying, oh, it happened because they were sinners, because Jesus says, you think we're sinners above all the Galileans? Debtors? Like back in Luke chapter 11, it describes those who owe debts. You think that somehow we as individuals are in less debt to the God of the universe than those Galileans? It's a good question, isn't it? In Luke 11, it describes, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The same word that's used here for sinners. It's a unique word. It's not hamartia. It's actually describing a debt. And the last antecedent, if you want, in the Greek, pointing back, a little ways back further, is Luke 11, when it, we were praying, Jesus is saying, pray to the Father who art in heaven and basically forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. They've already heard some of these words of Jesus. And yet, they somehow think that they are better than these individuals because Jesus has to confront them. If you have a one quotation for this, it says this in Christ Object Lessons, on one occasion, his soldiers had even invaded the precincts of the temple. Pilate had his soldiers go right into the temple, cut down some Galilean pilgrims in the very act of slaying their sacrifices. Pilgrims. Individuals traveling to that area, traveling to Jerusalem, traveling for, that's what pilgrimages were back then. You would come for the different annual feasts, and they were coming in, and they, they find themselves cut down while they're going into the very act of slaying their sacrifices. They are slayed. The Jews regarded calamity as a judgment on account of the sufferer's sin. And those who told of this act of violence did so with secret satisfaction. In their view, their own good fortune, hey, we're not the dead ones who got killed, right? Proved them to be much better and therefore more favored by God even than some of these militant Galileans. They were expected to hear from Jesus words of condemnation for these men who they doubted not richly deserved their punishment. And what does Jesus say Instead, he tells them to repent. He turns it right on them. They, they're expecting that any rabbi worth basically a following is going to say, look, just like the leper, he gets his spots, if you will, his leprosy by some sin, some cherished sin, some abomination of one of the seven deadly sins. These guys obviously deserve this. Maybe, maybe even they did something against God because they died right there in the temple itself, slaying those sacrifices. I found evidence outside of the Bible, even this very week, of not only the uh, religious flavor of that area, but, but even the fact that they had a synagogue there in Galilee. Uh, for many years, they basically debated whether Jesus would ta- teach out in the fields or if he ever went to a synagogue. Well, this very week, you can read about it in the Israel Times, they found evidence of a synagogue. They actually they published evidence of a synagogue in Galilee. And so if it's not enough from Jesus' own words or Christ's object lessons, we have articles that show us that these people were religious and followers of Yahweh, the Most High. And yet there are people among them that are condemning them for being killed by Pilate. So this is a picture of this find. You can see the some of the diggers, excuse me, the archaeologists are back there in the shady area, sitting there between digs. Some of them are right there. It's not a huge synagogue, but it would have taken an agrarian estate. Here's a good point: an agrarian estate, in other words, enough 
successful harvest by at least one rich benefactor to build this thing because the pillars themselves were very expensive. And so God, if you want to look, and this, is, this one is dated actually, they're thinking between 20 and 40 A.D. So this is around the time we're talking about. And this shows then that God's blessing must have obviously been in that area of Galilee, must have obviously at least given somebody enough of a harvest over enough time to build this synagogue. And so it shows that not only did they have that ability to do that, but they were devout followers as well to build a synagogue in those days. Students of the Scriptures, even if they had militant beliefs at times, and yet they're pointing the finger at these believers and saying, look, they got killed. Surely then they're sinners. And maybe at this case here when Jesus is talking, we could be tempted to say, well, this only applies to the Galileans. But he goes on. And he says, instead of letting them get away with the idea of, yeah, those Galileans were sinners, they deserved this, or somehow we're better than them. He calls them to repentance, and then he points them to a case even closer to home, to Jerusalem itself. And he goes and says it this way, Or those 18, Jesus says, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's really his law of end stress. He's taken them from the very story that they put in front of him. He's rebuked them and told them, you need to repent because you're no better than those Galileans. And then he tells them, he points them to another, if you will, headline of his day. The Tower of Siloam. We know from different representations or artist renditions of this that it's near the pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. And once again, you have that word sinners, those debtors. Jesus is saying, you're in debt just as much as they are. And could it be that he's pointing them to Jerusalem, the very place that will reject him, the very place that here he comes in riding a colt, that donkey, if you will, with that cross on its back. Jerusalem, the very place of impending destruction. One commentator says it this way, the reference here to the impending destruction of Jerusalem is far more from exhausting our Lord's weighty words. Yet these words point to a perdition of a more awful kind, future, personal, with no remedy. If we, we ourselves can see ourselves in the story, as maybe somebody who's tempted sometimes to even compare ourselves to one another. Like something bad will happen to you. That must be between you and God. Somehow something got in the way of your relationship or sin. But yet, it's more personal than that, isn't it? Jesus is turning it upon us and saying, we are the ones, each individually, who need to repent in these stories. Because it can happen to any of us. And so I still remember after that incident with September 11, I was walking over to my wife's workplace and she had the vehicle I would let her take the I, I would ride the vehicle I would take my vehicle to school and then eventually I would drop it off at her workplace I pick her I would either pick her up or or I'd walk over there to meet her after work at 11 or 12 at night and I remember I was one of these times I actually had the vehicle at home I drove it over there and on the way I was listening to the radio and the radio was describing the Patriot Act and all these basically all these freedoms we were going to lose and this lawyer is on there basically saying, once we lose this, then eventually, like he's prophesying almost. And I'm thinking, man. And then you flip the channel, and what else do you have on there? A preacher saying, basically, 
almost implying that these individuals died because of their relationship with God. You've heard some of that. And even the outcry after that, let's get America back to God, was really the, the, it was implying then that this happened because we weren't close to God. And I'm not saying as a nation we are. But we connect that tragedy somehow to a disconnect with the relationship with God. That's what they were doing in Jesus' day. And that's what we sometimes do in our day. Not all of us. I'm not saying that if the shoe fits, wear it. But it's interesting that now he points to this place, this Siloam, and he uses the word repent again, and he mentions it. Maybe there's some around him that believe that they're righteous and they don't need to repent. Can you imagine him, that person, receiving these words? Others feel they're going in the right direction. They don't need to turn. They don't need to somehow repent and turn to Jesus. Here's the one who knows their hearts. Here's the one who's uttering these very words that we're reading here. And he tells them to repent, yet they refuse. And let me ask you a question. What will happen to the Sabbath-keeping, tithe-paying, church-going, convert-producing, money-hungry, murderous Pharisee that refuses to repent? That's really progression, isn't it? You start watching these, these people. They, eventually, they believe that God blesses them through their means, that that's evidence of blessing. Well, they're going to perish, Jesus says right here in verse 5, without Jesus. I don't care how many years we've been going to church, I don't care how many degrees or Greek classes I've sat through or you've sat through or things, experiences, if we don't see our need for Jesus Christ, that's the course our life will take. It will not lead us back into that beautiful garden. It will not lead us down a path of life. We will perish. We will perish without Jesus Christ. And I'd like to say more on this. I mean, when the towers fall, he tells them to repent, to turn to him. Don't look at the headlines of the day. Don't just, and is he aware of them? Jesus is obviously aware of them. They bring him to his attention. He knows about them. But does he focus just on that? No, he takes that and turns it to a message of repentance. And as I read that, I thought, okay, Murray, how much time as a people, and they've done studies, even in the Adventist church and other denominations, of the biblical illiteracy because of the lack of time people are spending in the Word of God. All right, so if we're not maybe as a people or as a nation spending a lot of time in the Word of God, what are we spending our time doing? We're obviously watching something. You know, the Olympics. I thought to myself, if I would even spend a, a tithe of the time that the Olympics are on in the Word of God each day, that would probably be an improvement, wouldn't it? And yet, here we are watching people win gold medals, and yet Jesus is saying, you can win the medal, the crown of life, each day. Nothing wrong with watching the Olympics. I spend a little bit of time watching them. But I'm thinking to myself, how much time? Time is really of the essence. It's really important, especially as we look at things continuing to happen all around us in these headlines, how much time do we spend rehearsing the headlines, rehearsing things that happen? I know people who will spend, not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it as far as uh, knowing anything about this, but imagine spending enough time to memorize a whole football team roster, names, numbers, all their stats. I mean, that takes a lot of memorization. And yet you can't remember one scripture that you memorized. If your toe's that big and I'm stepping on it, I'm sorry. But if it sticks out, it's going to get stepped on. 
And if that's not bad enough, we spend time rehearsing evil, dwelling on it. Frankly, don't come to me anymore. This is my point in my tenure. I'm going to say this. Don't come to me anymore with your headlines. I know about them. I am familiar with them. But I don't need to know all the evil that's out there. That's a wrong tree that I don't eat from, except for at the peril of my soul. Because the poison eventually takes over you. How many times we replay the evil? That's why it's on over and over again. Every single newscast has the same repeat of the same main stories because there's an effort. There's an effort to basically make these things seem like the major things of life when they are not. How many headlines are good news? Very few. And so I think we are in that crowd today. We're between that tower and that pool of Siloam. And if you want to have a picture of this, there's an interesting picture you can see. They've circled the pool of Siloam here, and somewhere along there they're thinking the tower was here and it fell over. So you have a place that eventually gets to be known as a place of healing and a place where people could actually... Did some miracle happen over the pool of Siloam? By Jesus? Yeah? And yet they're focused on the catastrophe that took place nearby. I believe when these disasters happen, when these things happen in society... It's mainly God, if there's anything redemptive in it, it's really God saying to us, I have had mercy on you. You're no better than them. What if you were in that building when it went down? What if you were the one who watched that airplane coming right towards your building at, on September 11, the Twin Towers, and that building hit two, two, two stories up from you, and you knew everybody above basically died, and yet you were spared. What would you be thinking? That you were somehow better than those people? I would hope not. You'd be thinking, wow, God, that was close. And somehow you managed to be in the very situation where you could get those flights of stairs down instead of burning alive. You see, when towers fall, it's Jesus whispering to us, I still have mercy even when evil seems to strike. Later on, he will shout. But in the meantime, the next question is, what events are going to lead up to the end of the world? And what event should we be preparing for? Matthew 24. Shouldn't surprise us when we have these types of things. And no, I'm not re-preaching a September 11th. So I didn't even have a pulpit back then, so I didn't even preach on this thing. But as I got to Luke 13, September 11 automatically came to mind. You could take any other modern disaster... Even the Christians who are being basically boiled to death in the Middle East for their faith, and you, I don't know about you, but I don't feel like saying somehow I'm better than them. I feel like, Lord, that's a travesty that that could happen to your people. It makes me feel sad that somebody would be able to discard Christians to the point where they would be willing to, to, to boil them alive in, asphalt, in some kind of you know, tar but it doesn't make me feel better than them. It makes me feel like, Lord, what would happen if I was in their situation? I think that's the natural response. And I don't think we as a church really have a problem with pointing fingers at others as far as when disasters happen. I'm just saying, this is what the text draws out and says, we're no better than anybody else. And in Matthew 24, as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives in verse 3, disciples came to Jesus privately saying, tell us when will these things be what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the world or the end of the age? 
Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Verse 6, And you will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So you'll see these happen, you'll hear of them, but don't be troubled by them. And trouble comes when you focus on them all the time. So now you know why I say I can't really spend a lot of time with those type of things. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom will against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. I didn't even use the word signs. There's actually only two signs in Matthew 24. If you keep reading, they will deliver you up to, be, to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus told us they'd be killing Christians down at the end. And then many will be offended and will betray one another, will hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Mentioned that before. And verse 12, and because lawlessness will abound. This is, this is right out of Matthew. We don't even have to read the papers of the day to see that in Matthew 24, that was already prophesied. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. The only way to keep the heart alive is really to keep focusing on Christ. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness or as a sign in some translations to all the nations. And then the end will come. And where is the sign at in this text? Verse 30. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. That is the only sign you really find in this text. Those others are birth pains. Those other are, are events that lead up to the sign, which is the coming of Jesus after the gospel is proclaimed. And so what event should we be preparing for as we see things happen all around us? The same event that Jesus was trying to encourage them to be ready for then. Accepting him as the Messiah, as the suffering servant, as the risen Lord, as the soon coming king. You realize the progression would have been there for these followers who were looking at other people and pointing fingers if they had just looked to Jesus. And so yes, I know wars are taking place. Most of our wars in the world are unofficial wars. No declarations are going out from Congress and other places, excuse me, uh, uh, or parliaments or other groups that are supposed to be making official war statements. We, we just engage in war unofficially. And there's something wrong about that. And we also are encur encouraging cyber war. That's why your computer can be hacked by somebody in Russia and, and, and they can literally watch your babies in your room at night. This is all part of war. We are in a war. And the only thing that we know that will end this type of striving, this type of war, is the proclamation of something good. That's the only thing. Otherwise, it's going to keep going on and on. World War II didn't end it, did it? Pictures of the Holocaust did not end it. Concentration camp survivors giving testimonies did not end it. Obviously, as a human race, we are in a huge debt to God that only Jesus shows us the way. We have to go to the Father to be forgiven of. And so, we're going to have all of these things, even hunger, even with our GMOs that we think are somehow a magical crop that's killing off our bodies. Most of you who have troubles and allergies, you're basically the canary in the coal mine. It's, it's affecting us. False Christ. And did you notice in this text, it mentions false Christ, and then later on it, it mentions when, when you hear of him, it goes to singular. Gives a little credence to what we find in the great controversy where there will be an impersonation, a singular impersonation of Christ. All these things are going to happen. And most people who look on these 
are going to think, wow. And I know if I have a steady diet of all of this, my heart's going to fail me. Not necessarily in a heart attack, but in a spiritual withering effect that makes me feel cold deep down inside. And so Jesus gave us the remedy for all of this. I know God allows tragedy to take place. And you say, well, he's strong enough to to prevent it. Why doesn't he? We know we're in a war because it's all around us. I believe he's trying to show us another way when these things happen. He's trying to show us his mercy. He's trying to show us in what lengths that we will go as human beings and as the forces of darkness, what lengths they will go to rule people. To make it so that you feel like you have no other choice but to go along with them. So they provide you a steady diet of propaganda. And it's right there in every home. It's even on YouTube clips that criticize some of our pastors in our denomination. That's a fear piece of propaganda. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to cultivate fear in my, my scared lamb, my scared sheep uh, kindness. I want to cultivate kindness and lack of fear. Because the evil, the hate, the selfishness, the willingness to blow each other up for the trash this world offers us, I mean, that's really what that is, isn't it? The evil that our world encourages in order to get trash. And they allow anger and lust, and they lose out on hope of eternal gain because they're so focused on the trash this world offers. This is all going to be burned up like a big old incinerator. And so all this points me to the one who is altogether lovely, who would never do something like this to to anybody, let alone innocent individuals who aren't even engaged in that warfare. He's the maker of my heart. He's the one who helps my soul rest at night. He's the fairest Lord Jesus. He's the one who tells us, you know what, these things will begin to take place, but look up, lift up your head. The time of your redemption draws nigh. Don't look at these things That's why we were given as an Advent people that beautiful vision of the way. We're we're on that narrow path. And who are we looking to? We're looking to Christ. And if we don't look to Him, we fall off the path. And so He, Jesus, tells a story. And He wants us to apply it to our lives in Luke chapter 13. He says this story, this parable. Some people, I remember I was even at primary at camp meeting, they said the kids were defining the word parable as a make-believe story. It's not a make-believe story necessarily. It's just one of those Greek words <laughs> that are beginning Greek class that means to, to throw alongside. Basically, you could take a true story and you could throw a lesson alongside it. That's what the children's story is. That's what even songs can be, in a way, a story with a meaning. So he tells this story. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came and sought fruit and found none. Now, you know how frustrating that is, especially if you spend a lot of time with that fruit tree. Then he said to the dressers of his vineyard, Behold, look at these three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. It's kind of like my fig tree, you know? It just sat there for, I guess it's been four years now. It did no fruit for four years. I even dug a little pit around it, thinking, you know, kind of like out of the Bible. And my wife, well, this last year she put a little fertilizer on it. And guess what we have there? Figs. It was a depletion of the soil. You know, the soil wasn't good for that. And here I am, I didn't have a clue what I'm doing, but this guy obviously knows what he's doing. He's, he notices these three years, he comes to find fruit, and guess what's going to happen? Eventually, though, if that fruit tree would not continue to, even after all these measures, would not bear fruit. It's cumbereth the ground, it's taken up the ground, it's waste of ground. Let's rip it up and put something else there. And he answered and said to him, 
Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. That's the fertilizer then. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, cut it down. And so this is the parable he tells right after these two examples of the ones who got killed by Pilate and the tower victims. Why would he tell this? Do you notice he's getting close to Jerusalem? I mean, go from a Galilean story to Siloam, which is basically around Jerusalem, and now he uses the fig tree, which later on he'll curse the fig tree right when he's coming into Jerusalem. He basically, it doesn't give him any fruit. He rides into Jerusalem, begins weeping because the city would not repent and receive the Savior. They would actually destroy the Savior. And they themselves would be cut down in 70 A.D. So Jesus wasn't just telling this for his immediate audience. He's telling it for the nation of Israel. And today his message is the same. It it goes down as a ripple effect. It comes to us. It says, turn to Jesus in our times of trial. Turn to Jesus in times of turmoil. Turn to Jesus because he's the one who gives us life. Otherwise, you're not going to bear fruit and you'll be cut down. Otherwise, you and I will perish with this world. So I believe we're in a time of pruning And Jesus is carefully digging around in our hearts and making sure that there's nothing there that would prevent us from bearing this fruit. He's lovingly attending to each one of us, even through this story. I believe the answer then would be to take note of his words instead of maybe the headlines of our day. Cut those things out instead of Jesus out. If the riches of the world keep us asking for more riches and more houses and more lands, cut them out. If the relationships we are pursuing are our focus rather than Jesus Christ, and I know all about relationships in the 21st century, That's, that seems to be the thing. That's why we have all this anti-social media. Anti-social media. We should cut out those relationships that are hindering our relationship with God. Not necessarily in a way that says those people are lost, but, but maybe there's some negative, negative things that should not be going on. If the latest tidbit of conspiracy theory tastes a lot sweeter than Jesus, then cut it out. Because that strange wine of Babylon is spreading to many churches. And it seems to be people will get drunk off of it before they'll be happy in the Lord. And if the latest piece of that theory tastes more pleasant than Jesus, the sweetest name of all names, the wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this Prince of Peace who we sung about, then we need to throw away our computers and throw away all of our media altogether and just find that Bible and sit down with the Lord. Maybe even that smartphone that I don't have. So I believe time is running out. And we're no better than the Galileans or the residents of Jerusalem. I believe it's time for us to basically look at Jesus as the one who's our author of our joy. God and his son has been seeking fruit and had he found, and he found none. Israel was a cumberer of the ground. Its very existence was a curse. For it filled the place in the vineyard that a fruitful tree might fill. It robbed the world of the blessings that God designed to give. God had designed to give huge blessings through his people. They didn't do it. The Israelites had misrepresented God among the nations. That's a terrible thing to have happen. They were not merely useless, but a decided hindrance. To a great degree, their religion was misleading and wrought ruin instead of salvation. Wow. All because they didn't accept the words of Jesus. And the parable, the dresser of the vineyard does not question the sentence of that tree. If it remained fruitless, it should be cut down. 
but he knows and shares the owner's interest. He knows that the owner himself wants to not have a barren tree, but a fruitful tree. Nothing could give the owner greater joy than to see its growth and fruitfulness. Oh, those fresh peaches this year. He responded to the desire of the owner, saying, Let it alone this year also, till I will dig about it and dung it, and if it bear fruit, well. We've been given this time, just as the people of Israel were given that time. They had, they had about 30 years, really, after these words were uttered, more than 30 years, to revisit the words of the Savior, to accept the Savior. And Jesus would have probably, if, if you look at what happened in Jerusalem, many people, who, the ones who heeded the words of Jesus, lived, and the ones who did not were destroyed with Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And so we need to have our hearts won by the Savior now. We need to be having this great joy. And then we need to take that joy and that winning heart to those around us because the end is coming. You know, years ago, I came across a vision. And this vision really backs up this statement as well. Thus Christ rebuked the hypocrisy of the Jews. And under the figures of the barren fig tree in the great supper, he foretold the doom about to fall upon the impenitent nation. Those who had scornfully rejected the invitation to the gospel feast heard his warning words. I say to you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And so through these figures of the barren tree, those headlines, he turned them to his own words and said, come with me. I have a feast ready for you. We are living in the time of the feast right now of the marriage supper of the Lamb. He wants us by faith to be there each day. So the cross of mercy stood there in front of them. And yet, because they'd rejected his words, they couldn't accept that either. They destroyed the builder of the temple, the author of peace. Instead of looking to him, they wanted some teacher to come along to overthrow the Romans, to help them succeed in the political world, to help them answer the latest headlines of their day. How much time then? are we spending looking at the cross in the words of the Savior? Personal reflection, personal repentance of a darkened day long ago on our behalf. I believe if this practice continues to be my focus and your focus, we not only will see revival as a church, but we will see an outreach that this world has never seen before, at least not in South Shasta County and beyond. For if we do not recognize that when towers fall, we're being extended mercy, and, that, and then we are to extend that to others, then Jesus is clear. We'll find ourselves perishing with the very ones around us. So I think we need to reach the area that we're at. Last time we, I showed you this map, I believe that we can do this. And then if you notice, there's a lot of, dark, there's a lot of light spots. These are huge cities in our United States. And where are we at? We're somewhere right over here, this little dot up here, north of all that action down south of Sacramento and, and the Bay Area. We're that little dot. Maybe that's us right there on the interstate. God would have us reach this area, wouldn't he? That's probably Redding. It's, it, it's the closest thing I could find near there on the map. But time is running out. Our hearts have to be reached by Jesus. And I can't go on to Isaiah 29 because, um, let me go back here. I'm going to invite you to read that on your own because I'm going to read you a vision now that shows that we're even at a time where we have to be even more conscious of what we do. If I can get that guy off the screen there. All right. She has a vision and she feels like she's not at home. 
This is Ellen White, and she's wondering, where am I, Lord? She wakes up into this vision. She sees balls of fire coming down and hitting buildings. In fact, obliterating total city blocks around her. And she repeats, and she says, where am I? Where am I? And scenes I have represented that which will be. But warn my people to cease from putting their trust in men who are not obedient to my warnings and who despise my reproof. For the day of the Lord is right upon the world when evidence shall be made sure. Those who have followed the voices that would turn things upside down, cause their own movements, will themselves be turned where they cannot see, but will be as blind men. These words were given me from Isaiah 30. Now go, write it before them in in a table, and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, that it is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not, don't especially not write things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. I was instructed that light had been given me and that I had written under special light that the Lord had imparted. And this is written in 1906 in her diary. But she saw these balls of fire, and you all recognize from some other accounts of hers that she almost looked like the Twin Towers in some of those accounts. But here's another version of it where now the message is to God's people. Yes, you see the destruction all around you, but he's calling you to repent to not be carried along by the deceit, the smooth things, these voices that want to turn things upside down but not turn people to Jesus Christ. Remember, the only sign in Matthew 24 is the coming of the Lord. The others, birth pains, the others, you know, this gospel of the kingdom will come as a witness. But the sign is Jesus coming. And so when towers fall, Those towers remind us of the Lord's mercy. They challenge us to repent ourselves, to turn to Him, and then show fruit and mercy to the world around us. That's what He's whispering, isn't He? Even at this time, until those seven last plagues fall, there's still mercy mingled with the destruction. So this is our time that we're living in. In a little while, we're going to go home, yes. He's whispering mercy now. He's saying, go to the world around you now because when he comes, what's he going to shout? He's going to, this voice of the archangel is going to ring throughout the world. Those of us who are are dead are going to rise and and basically shout victory, death, where is your sting? I want us all to be there, but I want my neighbors and my friends and my family to be there as well. This is the time we're living in. And so when the towers fall, let's look around us Let's see if there's any wary, wayworn feet. Let's smooth the path for them. Let's invite them to follow us as we follow Jesus. That's the time we're living in. Our closing song is to that effect. And once again, I'm encouraging each one of us here to find some way, and maybe you're already doing it, but keep reaching out if you're already reaching out, but then find some way that we can unite together and reach out to those around us. For in a little while, we're going home. If you'd like to please stand. Let us sing a song that will cheer us by the way. In a little while we're going home And the night will end in the everlasting day In a little 
shall cross the billows foam. We shall meet at last when the stormy winds are past. In a little while we're going home. We will do the work that our hands may find to do. In a little while we're going home. And the grace of God will our daily strength renew. In a little while we're going home. In a little while, in a little while, we shall cross the billows foam. We shall meet at last when the stormy winds are past. In a little while we're going home. We will smooth the path for some weary wayworn feet. In a little while we're going home. And may loving hearts spread in a little while we're going home in a little while in a little while we shall cross the billows we shall meet at last when the stormy winds are past in a little while we're our rest. There's a rest beyond, there's relief from every care. In a little while we're going home, and no tears shall fall in that city bright and fair. In a little while we're growing home. In a little while, in a little shall cross the billows foam. We shall meet at last when the stormy winds are past. In a little while we're going home. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to remind us that yes, there are headlines of our day. Yes, towers fall. But in those headlines, are your mercy, reminding us that we should turn from those to you, reminding us that we should turn to pointing fingers to the one who has told us how to be forgiven. Bless and guide us to be forgiven and to share that with those around us. And Lord, help us be ready for soon in a little while. We are going home, but help us to bring as many as we can with us, for we ask it in Jesus' name.